Voyages of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff. Chapter 14. In the Valley of Vitea. It is not easy to analyze the magic which cousins every traveler into believing that he is the first to see Tahiti with clear eyes. One feels that it is made up of nature in a mood of unearthly loveliness, of a sense of ancient and unalterable life, of a realization that strange beliefs persist under a semblance of Christianity, of the lure of a race whose confidence the white man can never fully gain. The mail steamers, the wireless, the traders, the scattering of French officials, these things are a mere play of shadows on the surface. Even the churches, I was tempted to say, but the church plays more than a shadowy part in the life of the native whose religion, at the present day, is a singular blending of Christian doctrine and old heathen belief. The Tahitian reads his Bible, he has no other book, and sings loudly every Sunday in church, but the dead are still things of horror in his mind. Sorcerers, masquerading as doctors, still carry on a brisk trade and Tao Tao, the great-headed, is still a living presence in the valley of Panauru. When the people of the Society Islands accepted Christianity a century ago, they did so with reservations, of which the missionaries perhaps were not aware. Here and there, as at Fatewe on Muria, there was a burning of idols, but a great mass of material, old gods and heathen weapons, was stored in secure hiding-places among the hills. Today, after three generations of increasing European influence, hundreds of natives know of these caves and repair to them for purposes of their own. Yet a white man might spend his life on Tahiti without a glimpse of a senate-bound Oruro or a slender ironwood spear. My friend Arima is typical. The widow of a Yankee skipper, the owner of a neat wooden villa in Papati, where she appears regularly on her way to church in shoes, stockings, and a black silk gown. She finds it necessary, from time to time, to cast off the unnatural manners of Europe and live as she was meant to live, to be herself an elderly and delightful savage. When the mood comes, she closes the villa in Pepiti, gathers the willing members of her family, and repairs to her native house, far off on the peninsula of Taiapu. The house of Arima stands on a river-bank, shaded by a pair of mango-trees, dark green and immemorially old. The roof is thatched, with braided fronds of coconut. Breezes play through the lofty single room. Bare of furniture and floored with mats spread on white coral gravel, leveled and packed. Past the veranda on which the family sleeps through the warm hours of the day, the river flows out gently to the sea, a broad still water deep and glassy clear, peopled with darting shoals of fish, mullet, young pompano, and natto, the trout of the South Seas. Opposite the river mouth the reef is broken by a pass, through which the steady lines of combers sweep in to crash and tumble on the bar. Morning and afternoon the breakers are alive with naked children, shouting and glistening brown in the sunlight as they ride the waves. Inland, the valley marking the river's course is lost in a maze of broken and fantastic peaks. Seaward, bordering the green and blue of the lagoon, the snowy line of the reef stretches off endlessly, and beyond a three-league expanse of bright sea, the headlands of Tahiti, Nui, 
rise in vast swelling curves up and up to the perpetual clouds which veil the heights under a bright sun at midday when the palm tops toss to the trade which paints the lagoon in the deep passes and over the patches of sandy bottom with ruffled sapphire and emerald and sets the white caps to dancing beyond the reef or in the calm of night with the moon hanging low over the pinnacles of basalt when the polished surface of the lagoon is broken by the plunge and swirl of heavy fish and native songs rising and falling in savage cadences float out across the water it is a place not easily forgotten it was still dark when we rose maurie and i the brothers of maurie had returned from the reef and the ovens behind the cookhouse were smoking for in these places the hour of the day's first meal is set by the return of the fishermen i took one shuddering plunge into the river dressed myself in a shirt a waistcloth and a pair of hobnailed boots and squatted with the rest to consume a fresh-caught mackerel and a section of breadfruit dipped in a common bowl of sauce maurice sucked his fingers and stood up calling to the dogs Arima glanced at me over the back of a large fish she was gnawing holding it with both hands go you two she said you stay replied maurice as she turned to take the path to the mountains the oceanic tongue possesses no other words for parting we followed the river across the flatlands of the coast. Dawn was flushing in the east. The profile of lofty ridges, fern-clad and incredibly serrated, grew sharp against the sky. The minas were awakening. From the thick foliage of orange and mango trees came their extraordinary morning chorus, a thousand voices, whistling, screaming, and chattering that it was time the assembly broke up for the foraging of another day. In one place, where a turn of the path brought us suddenly to the edge of a still reach of water, a pair of native ducks, Anis speculacosa, rose vertically on beating wings and sped off over the palm tops. A little further on, where volcanic boulders began to appear through the alluvial soil, and the river leaped and foamed over the first rapids, a family of Tahitian jungle fowl, led by a splendid burnished cock, sprang out of the grass and streamed away in easy rapid flight towards the hills the dogs bound forward and stopped whining as they watched the wild chickens dwindle to speeding dots the groves of coconut palms and open pasture land were behind us now the valley was narrowing hemmed in by thousand-foot cliffs to which a tangle of vegetation clung the river became a torrent boiling and waist-deep plunging over cataracts, roaring down dark rapids under a roof of matted trees. Giant hibiscus a yard through, too remote to tempt the axe of the canoe-builder, candlenut, barringtonia, and mape. The island chestnut with bowls like fluted columns of a temple. The trail wound back and forth across the river, over the trunks of fallen trees, around masses of rock, tumbled from the cliffs above, mounting higher and higher into the heart of the island. Once, as we stopped to rest, I looked back and caught a glimpse of the sea, a wedge of blue, far behind us and below. The dogs had begun to range ahead, for they knew that any moment we might start a sounder of wild pig. I was growing tired. It was not easy to follow Marie as his own gait. He walked with the rapid, springing tread of a mountain man. When he stooped to clear a low, branching limb or loped off a section of creeper with an easy swing of his machete, I admired the play of muscles on his back, 
rippling powerfully under the smooth brown skin, silken and unblemished, unless it be by scars. The skin of these people is not like ours, but softer and closer in texture, seeming like marble to glimmer with reflected light. The gorge grew narrower. We rounded a buttress of jointed basalt, and came suddenly into the light and open of a lonely valley. A quarter of a mile wide and twice as long, set high above the sea and hemmed in by untrodden ridges, it lay here uninhabited and forgotten, in a silence broken only by the roar of savage cataracts and the far-off bellowing of wild bulls. Yet man had been here. Along the base of the cliffs we found the terraced stone of his dwellings, the blocks of volcanic rock, pried apart by the roots of huge old trees. Moray was squatting on his heels beside me, contemplating in silence these relics of an older time. Finally he turned his head. Those stones are very old, he remarked. They have been here always, since the beginning. Men placed them here, and men slept on them, but not the men of my people. My thoughts dwelt on the old idle tales I had heard of the lizard-men of the dark-skinned aborigines, the Manahomi, said to have been in possession of the land when the eyes of Polynesian voyagers first rested on cloudy Orofina. There were other tales, too, of a later day, of a tribe of men dwelling in the valleys, neither tasting fish nor setting foot on the beach except when, at certain intervals, they were permitted to come down to worship by the sea. Even today it needs no effort of the imagination to see two distinct types among the island people, men and women of the kind one considers typically Polynesian, tall, clean-limbed, and light-brown, with clear dark eyes, straight or waving hair, and heads not differing greatly from the heads of Europeans. Another kind of Negroid or Melanesian, cast, short, squat, and many shades darker in complexion, thick-lipped and apish with muddy eyes, kinky hair, and flattened, underdeveloped heads. And, strangely enough, after more than a century of missions and leveling foreign influence, the dark and awkward people seem still to fill the humbler walks of life. They are the servants and dependents, the feeders of pigs, the carriers of wood and water. Great stature, physical beauty, and light complexion are still the hallmarks of aristocratic birth. Writing of the islands a hundred years ago, old Ellis, the often-quoted closest observer of them all, remarked, It is a singular fact in the physiology of the inhabitants of this part of the world that the chiefs and persons of hereditary rank and influence of the islands are almost without exception as much superior to the peasantry or common people in stateliness, dignified deportment, and physical strength as they are in rank and circumstances. Although they are not elected to their station on account of their personal endowments, but derive their rank and elevation from their ancestry. This is the case with most of the groups of the Pacific, but particularly so in Tahiti and the adjacent isles. The father of the late king was six feet four inches high. Pomari was six feet two. The present king of Ratatina is equally tall. Their limbs are generally well-formed, and the whole figure is proportioned to their height, which renders the difference between the rulers and their subjects so striking that Bougainville and some others have supposed they were a distinct race, the descendants of a superior people, who at a remote period had conquered the aborigines and perpetuated their supremacy. 
There's a curious inconsistency in the matter of complexion, for in the old days a dark skin was considered the sign of a strong, warlike, and masterly man. Ellis records an extract from an old song. If dark be the complexion of the mother, the sun will sound the conch sail. And yet, on the same page, he observes that the majority of the reigning family in Rantitina are not darker than the inhabitants of some parts of southern Europe. While Moray and I rested among the ruins of the ancient settlement, the dogs had been more usefully engaged. My musings were disturbed by a sudden burst of squeals punctuated by exciting yelpings. Moray sprang to his feet, long knife in hand. It was only a small pig, a sixty-pounder, but he was bursting fat. Stuffed with vi apples, fallen from the great tree under which he had been feeding. The dogs had him by the ears when he arrived. A thrust of the machete put an end to his short and idyllic life. I hung him from a branch and skinned him while Marie went off in search of fee. Presently he returned, carrying on his shoulder a stout pole of hibiscus, from either end of which swung a bunch of mountain plantains, like huge thick bananas, the size of quart bottles and bright yellowish-red. There was a clump of palms nearby, another sign, perhaps, of man's former occupation, the relics of unnumbered vegetable generations. We had coconuts to drink, pork and fay were at hand, and plenty of fresh-water crayfish to be had in the river. In the islands the obtaining of food is always the signal for a meal. Mulray beckoned to me and led the way to the river, where he readjusted his waistcloth to leave a kind of apron hanging in front and plunged up to his armpits in the still water. With the apron spread as a trap for the darting crayfish, he moved slowly along the grassy and overhanging bank of the stream, stopping every moment or two to hand a struggling victim up to me. This little freshwater lobster is one of the most delicious shellfish in the world, of the same dimensions as the French equivoise, and not unlike it in flavor. In fifteen minutes we had enough, and the work preparing our meal began. I gathered wood and started a fire against the face of rock. Marie cut a section of giant bamboo, half-filled it with water, threw in the crayfish, and stood it beside the fire to boil. Our meal was genuinely primitive. I had cigarettes, matches, and a paper of salt stowed in the Tuckama Pabaru. Excepting our knives, we had nothing else that the rudest of savages might not have possessed. Turning up the earth with his machete, my companion scraped out a shallow trench, a mori oven. He set a ring of stones about the edge, lined the inside with pebbles, and filled the hole with coals from our campfire. While the coals glowed, heating the earth and stones, he cut off a loin and hindquarter of pork, wrapped the meat carefully in plantain leaves, and selected half a dozen of the riper plantains for our meal. Finally, when the oven was thoroughly hot, he scraped away the coals from the middle, laid in the leaf-raft pork, surrounded by a ring of plantains, pushed the hot stones close to the food, and covered the whole with a thick layer of plantain leaves. We ate the crayfish, boiled to a bright scarlet, while the balance of our meal was cooking. I added salt to the boiled-down liqueur in the bottom of the bamboo, and dipped in this natural sauce. The first course whetted our appetites for the tender meat and juicy plantions, which soon came from the oven. As we lay smoking after our meal, I could see that Marie had something in his mind, and was debating whether or not to speak. Finally he began, cautiously and with an air of skeptical restraint at first, but with more and more assuredness, as he saw that I listened seriously to his story. 
The old people say, he remarked, pointing to the head of the valley where the cliffs narrowed to a deep crack through which the river rushed, that far up in this same valley beyond the upper gorge you see a spirit dwells, one of the heathen spirits which are as old as the land. You and I may not believe in these things, but it is good when the evenings are long to listen to the stories of the old men. The name of the spirit is Tefatu. Some call him Vera Eno, saying that he dogs the footsteps of the living and preys upon the souls of the newly dead. But that is not true, for many times in the memory of my fathers he has been known to aid those in perplexity or distress. The old men believe that if a traveler, lost in these mountains at nightfall, calls on Tefatu for succor, the spirit will appear before him in the likeness of a pale moving fire and lead him in safety down to the sea. Once in sight of the sea, the man must cry out in a loud voice, You have aided me, Tefatu, and I am content. Stop here, and I will go on my way. It is not good to neglect these words of parting. Sometimes he is seen at night, flying from ridge to ridge of the mountain, a great glowing head, trailing a thin body of fire. Long ago, during the childhood of my grandmother, Tafatu left this land for a space of years. Men said that he had flown to Hawaii, but now he is returned beyond a doubt. High up among the cliffs I found the cave in which he sleeps by day. These eyes of mine have seen the old lord lying there among the whitened heads of men. I looked and turned away quickly, for my stomach was cold with fear. I cannot tell you clearly, Maurice went on, in answer to my obvious question, for I was greatly afraid. It seemed to me that he was a figure of wood, longer and thinner than a man, black with age, covered with carved patterns, and bound in places with close wrappings of nappy, the fine senate my people have forgotten how to make. The place was full of bones, scores of men had been slain, and their bodies offered there, as was the custom of our old kings. Once, not many years ago, a wise man came here from the islands of Hawaii, an old man, bearded and wearing spectacles. It was his work to write down the names of our ancestors, and he spoke our tongue, though haltingly and with a strange twist. He lived with us for a time, and we grew fond of him, for he was a simple man who made us laugh with his jokes and was kind to the children. One evening I told him how I had found the place of Tefatu. As I spoke, his eyes grew bright behind their windows of glass, and when I had done he begged me, in great excitement, to lead him to the cave, offering a hundred of your dollars if I could prove that I had spoken true words. I was younger then, and in need of money, for I was courting a girl. We went together into the mountains, but as we grew nearer the place something within me made me hesitate and I grew afraid. In the end I deceived that man who was my friend, telling him that I could not find the way. He was indeed a wise man. Another would have mocked me for a liar and a teller of idle tales. But he only smiled, looking at me kindly. He knew that my words were true, and that I feared to betray the sleeping place of the old lord. Mulray rose to his feet with the sigh of a man who had eaten well and is deprived of his rightful siesta. He shouldered his ponderous load of fay, which I could scarcely rise from the ground, 
and led the way toward the sea while I followed, bearing the remnants of the pig. It was noon when we reached the flatlands of the coast. A quarter of a mile above the house of Arima, we stopped to watch a large canoe loaded with a mound of seine, gliding up the river, followed by a fleet of smaller craft. An old woman stood in the bow, directing the proceedings with shrill volubility. She was the proprietor of the net, a village character at once kindly and tyrannical, widow of one chief and mother of another. As her canoe grew abreast of us, she gave the command to halt and spread the net. The river at this point is almost without current, very still and clear. Maurie and I sat on the high bank, too tired to do more than play the part of spectators. They grounded the big canoe just below where we sat, putting one end of the Seine ashore and paddling slowly across the river while the net was laid out in a deep, sagging curve downstream. One after another the smaller canoes were beached, and the people, half-naked and carrying spears, ran along the bank to take to the water a few hundred yards above. The river was alive with them, splashing and shouting as they drove the fish toward the trap. Next moment the bright shoals began to appear beneath us, the sunlight glinting on burnished sides as they darted this way and that by hundreds seeking a way of escape. A run of mullet flashed downstream, saw the net, turned, and were headed back toward the sea. A series of cries went up, Aye, aye! as fifty or sixty of the beautiful silvery fish leaped the line of floats and dashed away to safety. The old headwoman, dressed in a mother hubbard of respectable black and a rather handsome hat, was swimming easily in three fathoms of water. Nothing escaped her watchful eye. Eara! she shouted angrily. The best fish are getting away. Hurry, you lazy ones! Splash the water below the net, or we will not have a mullet left. Remember, that when the haul is over, he who has not worked shall have no fish. As the line of beaters drew near, the men in the big canoe paddled upstream and across behind them, throwing out net as they went, until the frightened fish and a score of swimmers were encircled. The two ends of the seine were now close together on the bank, and half a dozen men began to haul in with a will, their efforts causing the circle to narrow slowly and steadily. Looking down from the high banks, one could see children of ten or twelve, stark naked and carrying tiny spears in their hands, swimming like frogs a fathom deep in the water, pursuing the darting fish. Now and then a youngster would come to the surface with a shrill cry of triumph, holding aloft the toy spear on which was transfixed a six-inch fish. The people of the islands, as a rule, are neither fast nor showy swimmers. One can see prettier swimming any summer afternoon on the Long Island shore, but the Polynesian is at home in the water in a way the white man can never match. I watched an old woman, all of seventy and wearing a black blouse, girded tightly to her waist with a peru, treading water at the lower end of the net, where the fish were beginning to concentrate. She was as much at her ease as though she had been lying on her veranda exchanging gossip with a neighbor. Each time she thought the headwoman's eyes were turned away, she reached over the net, seized a fish, and stuffed it into her blouse, until a flapping bulge hung down over her peru. But old Tinamara's eyes were sharp. Enough, she cried, half laughing and half in anger. Are terra vanayi. Perhaps she thought to get a string of fish, too, for that worthless son-in-law of hers. At length the seine lay in two great piles on the beach, and only a bulging pocket, filled with a pulsating mass of silver, remained in the river. 
Under the direction of Tinamara, the fish were divided into little piles, strung on bits of hibiscus bark, and apportioned among the people, according to the size of their families and the amount of help they had given in the hall. For herself, she reserved a considerable share, for her household was large, and, as the owner of the net, she was entitled to a full half, more than she loaded into the big canoe. It was early afternoon when we laid down our burdens in the cookhouse and stripped for a swim. The others were awakening from their siesta a flock of brown children, all vaguely related to the family of Arima, followed us to the river, carrying miniature surfboards. Next moment they were in the water, splashing and shouting as they paddled downstream toward where the surf broke on the bar. Tegenau, the pretty sister of Amori, passed us with a rush and leaped feet first from the high bank. She rose to the surface thirty yards away, shouting a challenge to catch her before she could reach the opposite shore. Her brother and I dove together, raced across the river, and had nearly overtaken the girl when she went under like a grebe. I was no match for her at this game. Underwater she could swim as fast as I, and was a hundred times more at home. I gave up the pursuit and landed for a sunning among the warm rocks of the point. Out where the seas reared for the landward rush, the black heads of children appeared and disappeared. I could hear the joyous screams of others, flattened on their boards and racing toward me, buried in flying spray. The old woman I had seen helping herself to fish was coming down the river, paddling an incredibly small canoe, laden with an enormous bunch of bananas and four kerosene tins of water. She lived a mile down the coast, and, like many of her neighbors, braved the surf daily to supply her house with fresh water from the river. The gunwale of her canoe seemed to clear the water by no more than a couple of inches. I watched with some anxiety, thinking of the feelings of an American grandmother in the same situation. She ceased to paddle at the river mouth and watched her chance, while the frail dugout rose and fell in the wash of a half-dozen big seas. Then, in a momentary lull, she dug her paddle into the water. I sat up to watch. A boy standing in the shadows nearby shouted encouragement. At first I thought that she had chosen her moment well. The canoe passed the white water, topped a little wave without swamping, and was seemingly out of danger. But suddenly a treacherous sea sprang up from nowhere, rearing a tossing crest. It was too late to retreat. Certain disaster lay ahead. Stoatically, without a sign of dismay, the paddler held her craft bow in. The canoe rose wildly against the foaming wall, seemed to hang for an instant almost vertically, and then canoe, cargo, and old woman disappeared in the froth. The boy screamed in ecstasy as he galloped to the shallows to lend a hand. The other children ceased their play, and soon the canoe and its recovered cargo were brought ashore. They emptied the dugout and filled the tins with fresh water. I heard the old woman laugh shrilly as she wrung her clothes on the beach. Presently, coached by a dozen amused spectators, she made a second attempt and passed the surf without a wetting. When I saw her last, she was paddling off steadily to the west. I was dozing among the rocks when a ringing whistle startled me, and I looked up to see a bird, like a large sandpiper, alight on the beach and begin to feed, running briskly after the receding waves or springing into the air for a short flight when threatened by a rush of water. It was a wandering tattler, and no bird was ever better named. Solitary in its habits, except in the breeding season, when it resorts to northern lands, so remote that its nest and eggs are still, I believe, unknown. 
It travels south at the approach of winter, making lonely passages across some of the widest stretches of ocean in the world, to Hawaii, to the Galapagos, to the Marquises, and probably to the remote southern islands of Polynesia. What obscure sense enables the migrating bird to follow its course far out of sight of land? In France, I have flown side by side with wild geese, heading steadily southward above the sea of clouds. It seemed to me that, like the pilot of an airplane, they might guide themselves in a general way by the sun, the stars, or the look of the land below, an idea borne out by the fact that geese become lost and confused in a fog. But in considering a bird like the carrier pigeon or the tattler, all such theorizing comes to an end. No general sense of north and south could guide the tattler to the lonely landfalls of the South Pacific. His wanderings, like the migration of the golden plover, or the instinct of the shearwater, which sends him unerringly on the darkest night of storm, to his individual burrow in the cliffs, must be classed among the inexplicable mysteries of nature. On the road which passes close to the house of Arima, I found Tejano in conversation with the driver of a Chinese cart. She was bargaining for a watermelon. The Chinaman stood out for three francs. She offered two. Enough of talking, she said firmly. The melon is the best you have, but it is green. I will give you two francs. A Torah tota, muttered the proprietor of the melon indifferently. Toata means a franc but is obviously a corruption of quarter, for the dollar passed current here long before the money of France. "'Look at my clothes,' pleaded the deceitful girl, changing her tactics suddenly. "'I am a poor woman who could not afford to pay the prices you expect from the chief.' "'Come, dear Tinito, give me the melon for two francs.' The Chinaman shrugged his shoulders and glanced at me. The glint in his narrow eye might have meant, "'Ah, these women, what's the use?' He sighed for a moment, while Tejito looked at him pleadingly. He was silent. "'Take the melon,' he said, and give me two francs. I must be on my way. But do not think you have deceived me, cunning woman. I know that you are not poor, for only yesterday your brother sold the copra from your land.' Without a sign of embarrassment, the girl opened her hand and held up a hundred-franc note. Ah, "'You are rich,' remarked the Chinaman, as he undid an oilcloth wallet and stripped the change from a substantial roll of bills. I knew it. Are you not ashamed to practice such deceit? But Tehenato only tucked the melon under her arm with a triumphant smile. It is a curious study to watch the contact of Chinese and Polynesian races separated by the most profound of gulfs, yet possessing the meeting ground of a common love of bargaining. All through the French islands, you will find Chinamen scattered singularly or in little groups, through the windward and leeward societies, the Marquis, among the distant atolls of the Pompidou, in the remote Gimbales, in Tupay, Raterlu, and lonely Ramitera. They are keepers of small stores, for the most part, where you may see them interrupted at their eternal task of copra-making to exchange a box of matches for a single coconut, or to haggle for a quarter of an hour over a matter of five sous, patient, painstaking, and unobtrusive, existing in inconceivable squalor, without the common pleasures which enable most of us to tolerate our lives. They seem to be impelled by motives far more profound than the longing for material gain. 
by a species of idealism equally incomprehensible to the native and to the visitor of European race. It is not beyond possibility that in the course of a few more generations it will be the native islander who lingers here and there, isolated in communities principally Chinese, for the islanders, superb physically, are the least prolific of men, while the weedy little Tinito, who brings his own women with him, or succeeds with his own peculiar knack, in obtaining women from a population which regards him with amused contempt, surrounds himself with children in as short a time as nature allows. I have sometimes thought that the secret of the Chinaman's dogged and self-denying labors might lie here, traceable to his cult of ancestor worship. To become a revered ancestor one must have children, and in order to bring up properly a large family of children one must spend one's life in unceasing toil. I doubt that Europeans in large numbers will ever be tempted to make the islands their home. The life is too alien, the change too great. As things are, the relation of Polynesian and Chinese amounts to a subtle contest for the land, a struggle of which both parties are aware. The native, incapable of abstract thought, feels and resents it vaguely to the Chinaman, whose days are spent in meditation, undisturbed by the automatic labors of his body. The issue is no doubt clear-cut. The native is by far the more attractive of the two, clean, kindly, selfish, jolly, childish, well-bred, and pleasing to the eye. But the Chinaman possesses the less attractive qualities which make for the survival of a race, the industry, the unselfishness, the capacity to live for an idea, and in the end, if only by force of numbers, he will win. Looking into the future, one can see the eastern islands populated by Chinese, as our own islands of Hawaii have been populated with immigrants from Japan. They are dying anyway, and they won't work. The commercial gentleman will tell you, here is rich cane land, needing only labor to produce bountifully, and the world needs sugar. Perhaps this view is correct, for myself. I feel that the question is debatable. There are certain parts of the world, like our American mountains, deserts, and lonely stretches of coast, which seem planned for the spiritual refreshment of mankind, places from which one carries away a new serenity and the sense of a yearning for beauty satisfied. Ever since the days of Cook, the islands of the South Sea have charmed the white man, explorers, naturalists, traders, and the rough crews of whaling vessels. The strange beauty of these little islands, insignificant so far as commercial exploitation is concerned, seems worthy of preservation. And the native paddling his outlandish canoe, or lounging in picturesque attitudes before his house, is indispensable to the scene. If the day comes when his canoe lies rotting on the beach, and his house is tenanted by industrious Chinese, though the same jagged peaks rise against the sky, and the same seas thunders lazily along the reef, when the anchor drops and the call comes to go ashore, I, for one, shall hesitate. In the Cook Group, six hundred miles west of Tahiti, the prospect is less depressing for the British have adopted a policy of exclusion and made it impossible for the native to sell his land. The Cook Islander, reinforced here and there with a dash of white blood, and undiscouraged by a competition he is not fitted to meet, seems to be holding his own. The reason is clear. The native has been little tampered with, left in possession of his land, and protected rigidly against epidemics like the influenza of 1918 
which ravaged the island populations wherever infected vessels were permitted to touch. Imported disease, exploitation of the land, and coolie immigration. These are the destroying forces from which the native must be preserved if a shadow of the old charm is to linger for the enjoyment of future generations of travelers. Following Tejino toward the house, I thought to myself how wonderfully the island charm had been preserved here on the peninsula of Taparu. We were within fifty miles of Papati, where business is carried on, and steamers call, and perspiring tourists walk briskly about the streets. Yet here, in this lonely settlement by the lagoon, civilization seemed half a world away. When I walked aboard, the sight of a white man brought the people to their doors, and bands of children followed me, staring and bright-eyed with interest. On the veranda children surrounded us while the girl cut and distributed thin slices of her melon. There was a fascination in watching these youngsters, brought up without clothes and without restraint, in an environment nearly as friendly as that of the original human pair. Once they were weaned from their mother's breasts, which often does not occur until they have reached the age of two and a half or three, the children of the islands are left practically to shift for themselves. There is food in the house, a place to sleep, and a scrap of clothing if the weather be cool. That is the extent of parental responsibility. The child eats when it pleases, sleeps when and where it will amuse itself, with no other resources than its own. As it grows older, certain light duties are expected of it gathering fruit, lending a hand with fishing, cleaning the ground about the house, but the command to work is casually giving and as casually obeyed. Punishment is scarcely known. Yet under a system which would ruin forever an American or English child, the brown youngster flourishes with astonishingly little friction. Sweet-tempered, cheerful, never bored, and seldom quarrelsome, the small boy tugs at the net or gathers bait for the fisherman, seemingly without a thought of drudgery. The small girl tends her smaller sister in the spirit of playing with a doll. Perhaps the restless and aggressive spirit which makes discipline necessary in bringing up our own children is the very quality that has made the white race master of the world. Perhaps the more hostile surroundings of civilization have made necessary the enforcement of prohibitory laws. I filled my pipe and lay smoking on a mat, with an eye on the youngsters at their play. For the time being, a little girl at the most attractive period of childhood was the center of interest. One of her front teeth was loose. She had tied a bit of bark to it, and was summoning up courage for a determined pull. A boy stole up behind her, reached over her shoulder, and gave the merciful jerk. Next moment he was dancing around her, waving the strip of bark to which the tooth was still attached. The owner of the tooth began to sob, holding a hand over her mouth. But her lamentations ceased when a larger boy shouted seriously, "'Give her the tooth, and let her speak to the rat.' The small girl trotted to the edge of the bush, where I heard her repeat a brief invocation before she flung the tooth into a thicket of hibiscus. I knew what she was saying, for I had made inquiries concerning this children's custom, probably as old as it is quaint. It is a sort of exchange. The baby tooth is thrown among the bushes, and the rat is invoked to replace it with one as white and durable as his own. The child says, Thy tooth, thy tooth, O rat, give the man. The tooth, the tooth of the man, 
I give to the rat. No doubt the games of children everywhere are very much the same. In the islands, at any rate, an American child would soon find itself at home. The boys walk on stilts, play tag, blindman's bluff, prisoner's base, and a game called peripania, like what we call peewee when I was a youngster in California, almost exactly as those things are done at home. The girls play cat's cradle, hopscotch, jackstones, and jackstraws, often joining in the rougher games of their brothers. One curious game, evidently modern and perhaps originated by the children of missionaries, is called Parapoa Tahi, the game of the wild beast. The boys and girls who pretend to be sheep stand in line one behind the other, clinging together under the protection of the mother ewe at the head of the line. Presently the wild beast appears, demanding a victim to eat. "'You are the wild beast?' the sheep ask. "'Yes,' he replies, "'and I want a male sheep.' He then waits while the sheep, in whispers inaudible to him, decide on which boy, for the beast has his choice of sexes, shall be sacrificed. When the decision is made, the mother at the head of the line says, "'You want a male sheep?' At that all the others chant in unison, "'Then take off your hat, and take off your clothes, and strike the hot iron.' The last word is the signal for the victim to make a dash for safety. If he can get behind the mother before the wild beast catches him, the performance is repeated until the beast succeeds in catching another boy or girl, who then becomes the Pua Tahini. The twelve-year-old daughter of Marie, or Amaria, was the great-grandmother, not an uncommon thing in this land of rapid generations, had been talking for several days of piercing her ears in order to install a pair of earrings, to which she had fallen heir. This evening she had finally mustered courage for the ordeal. I watched her hesitating approach, and saw her hand, Tamartu, the necessary instruments, a cork, a pair of scissors, and a brace of sharp orange thorns, from which the green bark had been carefully stripped, whatever the color woman's endurance in the name of vanity is proverbial. The child made no outcry as the thorn passed through the lobe of her ear, sank into the cork, and was snipped off, inside and out, close to the skin, the remaining section to be removed a fortnight later, when the small wound had healed, as Tehinotu smiled at me and flourished the scissors to which clung a drop of blood. I heard a shrill call from the cookhouse, Harry May Tama! It was supper-time. Some of the children, in answer to the call, straggled toward where Amenia squatted beside her oven. Others, already stuffed with odds and ends of fruit, went on with their play. Marie beckoned to me as he passed. The meal was a casual affair. One helped oneself, without ceremony, squatting to exchange conversation between bites, or walked away, food in hand. There were pork, cold fish, baked taro, and sections of cream-colored breadfruit, ripe and delicately cooked. The sun had set when we finished, and as the sky gave promise of a clear night, I spread a mat on the river bank. Bedtime in these places comes when drowsiness sets in. As I fell asleep, the clouds veiling the highlands of Tahiti Nui were still luminous in the afterglow. It was midnight when I woke. In the house, faintly illuminated by the light of a turned-down lamp, the family of Aramia slept. The air was warm and scented with the perfume of exotic flowers. The river was like a dark mirror, reflecting the stars. Even the Pacific seemed to sleep, 
breathing gently in the sigh of little waves, dallying with the bar. Presently I became aware of subdued voices. Arima and Timata, the chief's mother, were seated on the rocks below me, fishing with long rods of bamboo for the fia, which runs in with the night tide. They were recalling the past as old ladies will. The women of Tahiti, remarked Timora, are not what they were when I was young. Nowadays you may travel from morning to night without seeing a really beautiful girl. These are true words, says Hermina. Aye, if you had seen my eldest daughter who died when she was fifteen, she was lovely as the Etate, the white tern which hovers above the treetops. Her eyes were brown and laughing, her hair fell in ringlets to her knees, her teeth were small white pearls, and her laughter like the sound of cool water running in a shady place. Alas, my vihinta! She was our firstborn. My husband loved her as he loved none of the others, a strange, dreamy child. I used to watch her when she thought herself alone. Sometimes, I know not why, the tears came to my eyes as I saw her gazing into the sky, while she chanted under her breath the little old song the children sing to the turn. Oh, Atelier, saving above the still forest, where shall you fly to-night? Downwind across the sea, to Terror, the low island. As she grew older, a wasting illness fell on her. The doctors could do nothing to stop her coughing. My husband even took her to the white doctor in Papeete. It was on his recommendation that we took her to sea. We were in Mangave, far off the Gimber Islands, when I saw that the end was near. My husband was not blind. He headed back for Tahiti at once, giving up the rest of his trip. Benihita was never more beautiful than on the last morning of her life. Cheeks flushed and eyes shining soft and clear as the first star of evening. We were nearly home, off Mita, the little island which lies between Tahiti and Anna. She died in my arms, and I covered her with the bright patchwork to appear. Her own hands had sewn. Our child is dead, I told the captain. Her father, as I came on deck, he said nothing but put a hand on my shoulder and pointed towards the masthead, where I saw a small white tern hovering above us. I cannot tell you how, but I knew at once the soul of my daughter was in that pretty bird. It flew with us all day, and at evening, as we entered the harbor of Papeete, it turned back and disappeared in the night. For many years thereafter, each time my husband passed Maitia, homeward bound, the white bird was waiting for him at the place where my daughter had died. The voices of the old women murmured on, recalling the joys and sorrows of other days. Suddenly in a mango tree behind the house a rooster crowed, answered far and near by others of his kind, as the last drawn-out cry died in silence of the night. I yielded to an overpowering drowsiness and fell asleep. End of chapter 14